I've said before, kind of not really joking, it's more something I say in despair that when you write a short story, it's like painting a picture on the head of a pin to get everything in there. And when you write a novel, it's like painting this giant mural that when you're working on it, you're too close to see the whole thing. You're listening to Mid-Moment, a podcast of ideas from Middlebury's leaders and independent thinkers who create community. I'm Lori Patton, president of Middlebury and professor of religion. Today's guest is Rebecca Mackay, a distinguished author of four novels, a collection of short stories, and numerous works of fiction that can be found in the most respected literary journals and magazines around. A few things you should know about Rebecca. She was a Montessori teacher for 12 years before she published her first book. She is the daughter of linguists, and her work has been translated into 20 languages. Her third novel, The Great Believers, is a story set in Chicago at the height of the American AIDS epidemic, as well as 2015 Paris. It catapulted her to literary stardom. The book garnered many honors and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Her fourth novel, I Have Some Questions For You, was published this spring and has already earned rave reviews from The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, National Public Radio, and many other media outlets. Rebecca graduated from Middlebury's Breadloaf School of English in 2004 and returns to the Green Mountains each summer. Last year, she served on the faculty of the Breadloaf Writers' Conference, and this June, she'll be back on the mountain as a faculty member at the School of English. Rebecca, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here. I want to talk to you at greater length about your connection with Middlebury. Yeah. Because this is a show about Middlebury Connections. And before we do that, just thinking about the through line in your work of this idea in the 100-year house that there are hidden documents in the borrower, there is the smuggling books motif, and in The Great Believers, there's the disappeared daughter, that there's some through line of hiddenness and presence and presence and absence that is something that feels very much part of human relationships in some way or other throughout all of your work. No, that's a great observation. Thank you. You know, I mean, certainly every book you write is a mystery, whether it's a mystery about the past or about the present or about the future, and, and whether there's a you know dead body involved is a different thing. But it's always going to be about unanswered questions and the way that we might try to figure out what got us to where we are, what information are we missing, or we might be asking those questions about where we're going next. And so I definitely am thinking also, you know, presences and absences along with that are, are certainly part of that. What characters are still there? Who is who is absent but being thought about is very important to me. What information we have, what information we don't have. So, you know, themes are always things that other people point out to me later. Of course, um, Or that yeah. I think about maybe when I'm editing. It's not something that I do or should think about as I enter into any writing project. When I talk to my students, I, I've seen so many students almost inevitably get tripped up when they head into a project thinking about theme or thinking about meaning. It's a recipe for disaster. They either never start the book because they can't work it all out. And what, how would you possibly work it out before you start to write? Or they get in there and they have certain points to prove and they they aren't able to take their hands off the wheel. They aren't able to let the book be what it is. Absolutely. Um, I was also thinking of the temptation, not only of elaborating upon meaning till there is 
only a thinness of meaning left as a writer, because I'm sure the temptation is there also for you as a writer of historical fiction to show off how much research you've done, you know, on a particular mm. thing. And then the research takes over. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very dangerous. And it's, you know, there, there are times when there's something that you learn that you very much want to get in there. You feel like it's essential, but it's a danger, I think, of doing too much research too soon, honestly. You know, certain circumstances that, for instance, with the Great Believers, I really needed to get the lay of the land on the AIDS epidemic in Chicago in the 80s before I began, but in a very general way. And with my new novel, I have some questions for you. Uh, a lot of things about the legal system in New Hampshire I had to work out, or I would have started writing a book that was not going to make any sense in the end. But that lay of the land stuff needs to be very basic, very preliminary, because then you need to get in there and figure out what questions you need answers to. And if you try to figure that all out before you begin, you're going to end up with pages and pages and pages of research that you try to shoehorn into a text that doesn't need it. And when you research on a need-to-know basis, uh, of course, a little beyond that, you find you have the information that is relevant to the story. Yeah, and you're not caught up in providing so much narrative description that you're kind of trying to make a film out of narrative description rather than just letting the characters drive the story. Exactly, right. And that's, I, I was telling my students that, you know, you need, you want your characters to be wind-up toys, not puppets. You know, <laughs> like, set it in the right direction and then see what it does. You don't want to be yeah. controlling it, you know, the whole time. Right, right. Now, it's a great, great comparison. I love those images. So, I've noticed in your responses so far, you've talked about teaching a couple of times. And I'd love to hear you, you're, you're a teacher now. You, you were a teacher before you published your first book. Well, very different kind of teaching, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, tell me a little more about that journey from you were writing your books as you were doing that very different kind of teaching. Yeah. So tell me about that. That must have been an incredible feat, a balancing act. And how did you manage it? What was your life like? And how does it feel now to be actually teaching your craft? Right. Well, here's what happened. I, you know, I graduated from college and I had heard about this amazing graduate program at Middlebury College that I really wanted to go to in the summers. <laughs> and um, I was accepted at Breadloaf at the School of English. And basically, you know, coming out of college, my choice at that point, I was thinking of doing a PhD in English literature, but I had a job offer teaching Montessori Elementary School. And at the same time, had been looking into Breadloaf and realized that those two things could coexist that I could get this master's in the summer and I could teach during the year. The very first person I met within seconds of arriving at Breadloaf was the man I ended up marrying. So then we ended up going back every summer on support staff. But the elementary school teaching that I did, it was wonderful. These were, you know, for most of my career, it was fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Montessori is mixed ages and you teach every subject. So never get bored. Every day is different. And then I didn't have children of my own yet, at least at the beginning of that time. So I was able to do a lot more writing in the evenings. That worked pretty well. You know, summer vacation, well, <laughs> didn't have summer vacations at first because of Breadloaf, but like, you know, the times around that, spring break, things like that. I taught until just a little bit after my first book came out. I was, I was part-time the next year. Then pretty quickly started teaching grad students, undergrad conferences, that has grown and grown in teaching creative writing. So I now I teach grad students at Northwestern University and 
in a low residency program out on Lake Tahoe. I teach at the Breadloaf School of English in the summer. My main gig is I'm the artistic director of Story Studio Chicago, which is a nonprofit writing arts center here in the city. And then I teach at a lot of conferences. I taught at the Breadloaf Writers Conference last summer. So it's it's a lot. It doesn't feel, I mean, it's it's of course different teaching kids. There's a lot of classroom management. There's a lot of, you know, put that down, come over here. Why don't you sit by me? <laughs> right. Um, that fortunately you don't need to deal with with grad students. But in terms of getting information across, in terms of making sure people understand, in terms of encouraging them, there's a lot of similarity. There really is. Well, and you're sort of doing an intellectual version of put that down, come over here, right? Well, yes, that's true. That's true. Put that project down. Step away from this book. Right. <laughs> Step away from that. Yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking about you as a student at Breadloaf School of English, as well as, of course, now faculty member and also the Writers' Conference and so on. And I'm thinking a lot these days about when I talk to young alums or people who are achieving the kind of success that they want to be achieving in life, like you are at this moment in your career. And I always love asking them, what was the moment of obligation? I.e., when did you know that you wanted to do this work? You know, I know you grew up with parents who were linguists. There might have been the moment of obligation when you said, hey, I'm not going to be a linguist, or maybe you knew that from an early (laughs) age. They would have died if I went into linguistics. Oh, my God. (laughs) Your parents would have? Yes. No, they were. Tell me why. Oh, they were fairly miserable in academia. Oh, really? Well, I mean, in very, yeah, yeah. You know, very large uh, public university with a lot of red tape and a lot of infighting. And, and you know, I, I think I think also, of course, I heard the worst parts of it because I heard the things they would come home and complain about. Of course. Um, but uh, yeah, they did not make it look too appealing. <laughs> yeah. So so you had sort of a negative moment of obligation in your childhood, like, no, I don't want to do this. But what about writing? Was there a moment either at Breadloaf or other moments when you kind of knew that this was what you wanted to do with your Oh, life. seventh grade. I mean, I mean, this was very, very early. Yeah. You know, was writing all through childhood, like a lot of kids do. At least they, they make up stories, if, even if they don't write them down. Through grade school would often win the library writing contest, which I think there were probably three entries, you know. But that was some really solid affirmation. And then... Towards, you know, middle school, I always joke it's, you know, at the same, right at the same time that my writing got very bad, you know, very self-obsessed, you know, the same, right. the same era when you discover black and white photography and take photos of garbage in the gutter and, and decide yeah. that it's art, right? But at that point, really, you know, decided that that's what I wanted to be and then never doubted that, never looked back, never, never doubted that I should and and honestly never doubted that I could either. I don't mean that I was sure that I could make a living as a writer necessarily. But there were points early on when I felt like, okay, I'm, you know, if I'm the kind of writer who publishes a story in a, in a journal every two or three years, then that's my career, then that's great, and I'm going to keep doing that. And it was, a, yeah, a, a thing that emerged and that emerged with clarity. I think it's a personality type in a lot of ways, right? In the same way that someone just is a, an actor, just is a painter. And it's certainly people can come to it later in life. But, but for, that, for some of us, it's, it's just kind of baked in. It's so clear. Yeah. How do you work with your students who are paralyzed somehow by, by self-doubt? 
I'm sure you get that a lot and you have to work with it. I do. It's hard because it's, that's something that it's, it's almost impossible to teach. And there's, in some cases, I, you know, if someone really does want to be a writer, but there's, they are really self-sabotaging, which is something that I see even more than the doubt. I see the self-sabotage, the, oh, I'm going to stop this project and start another one. Oh, I'm going to stop that project yeah. and start another one. I think one of the best skills any artist can have is the ability to distinguish between being stuck for reasons of craft and being stuck for psychological reasons. And we often misdiagnose ourselves. So very often people are, they are stuck psychologically. They're, they're doing that self-sabotage, but they're telling themselves, oh, I need to rewrite this in the third person. Oh, no, actually it needs to have seven narrators because they're, they're keeping themselves from ever finishing the book. And in contrast, you can quite often have someone who believes they have a psychological block. They go, oh, I can't write. I have writer's block. I have writer's block. And you, you sit down with them and you look at the book and you go, no, you have a craft issue, which is that mm-hmm. there's no inherent momentum to your plot or something like that, right? And if you, if you could solve that, it would be very easy to write this book because you'd, you wouldn't be sitting there trying to decide what happened next. You'd know what happened next. And this is a craft issue. You know, the, that process of self-diagnosis, I think, is fundamental before you can go on and actually figure out uh, how to fix it. And, and so very often that's what I'm doing. And, if, and then if it is psychological, if it is self-sabotage, uh, there's not a ton that I can do as an instructor except to say, you know, maybe, maybe talk to a therapist or maybe really dig down to the bottom of this right. or at least acknowledge what you're doing. Well, uh, what I love about your move pedagogically mm-hmm. is that it focuses it back on the task at hand. My husband and I almost started a company company slash consulting thing because we seem to be always talking to people with writer's block as mm. people who did not have writer's block. And then I realized about a third of the way into the people I wanted to work with that I was the excuse for them not writing ah. because I was helping them with writer's block. And I thought, the whole time I'm talking to you, you could be writing. Oh, <laughs> right? my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... I really understand what you're saying because I think once you are able to turn writerly attention back to craft, you have an entirely different project that you're both looking at together. Right. Rather than it becoming, as you say, there's a time and a place for a therapeutic engagement. Right. But that's not your work and that's not the work of the novel or the short story. No, and people can really get hung up on this idea of writer's block, which, you know, is, I mean, I'm not the first person to point out that, that, you know, for some reason, somehow writing is the only one where we get blocked. It's not, you know, not artist's block. It's not dancer's block. You know, why writers? It doesn't make any sense. Except that, of course, I mean, it does in a way because it's, it's, if it's really the truest expression of yourself, then I can see how, yes, things can stand in your way, but we can get caught up in talking about it rather than in actually just moving ahead. Absolutely. I think that's right. So were there moments during your summers at Breadloaf that changed you as a writer? Were there things that oh, about the Breadloaf experience that you remember now and say, okay, at Breadloaf, this was the major thing that I learned? It, yes, definitely. Again, you know, I, I did know that I wanted to be a writer. And so I was taking literature classes as well as as well as some creative writing classes which is something wonderful about that program that that those are available but always with an eye on what I wanted to do with it 
Oscar Eustace, the director who taught there in the 90s and, and the aughts, my first summer I studied with him and it was contemporary American theater. So he was talking about Eugene O'Neill up through Angels in America. He taught me more about structure than any writing class, I think, could have. Basically because it was object lessons. He wasn't trying to teach us how to write. He was talking through the issues he had worked through with various playwrights, the way they'd solve things, the way that scenes work as building blocks. I mean, that was that was absolutely, you know, foundational. And then I had wonderful writing classes. I studied poetry with Paul Muldoon. I studied fiction with David Huddle. They were both wonderful. If I think back, it's like, well, God, you know, so much of, you know, I spent almost all of my 20s learning in part because my husband and I did come back on support staff, then I would always audit classes. So it, it was as if I were enrolled for eight years, nine years, something <laughs> like that, wonderful. instead of instead of five summers. It's, you know, no, not necessarily some major aha moment, but just yeah. foundational texts that you don't realize how deeply they sunk in until you find yourself thinking back on that and, and seeing echoes of that in your own work. Yeah, it, I, you sometimes don't realize how foundational they are until 30 years later when they've clearly been the foundation that you almost didn't know or know to acknowledge. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, Rebecca, one of the things that I was really struck with in what you just said was, you know, you learned about structure from a playwright, and I'm particularly thinking these days about ways in which writers and creative folk in general tend to go to another genre sometimes to get back to theirs or to refresh theirs or to get insight into the work that they're doing. So novelist and short story writer feels that sometimes plays can be as helpful um, to the structure of a plot, for instance, in the novel, as another novel writer might be. And I'm also noting that you have worked in two different genres, at least, both short stories and novels. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could describe a little bit about the differences and what it means to move between them. I, I noted in an interview that you spoke about there are certain topics that you take on that you couldn't sustain for an entire novel, even right. though it's awesome and you really want, you're excited about it. And then there are other topics that as you think about maybe writing a short story about that it becomes too big and that you really need to devote a novel to it. I was really struck by that. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that in the creative process. And it's not just topic. It is also modes of telling. So, you know, for instance, I have a short story in my collection that it's very short and it's written as a, just the answers to an interrogation. And pieces of them are like blacked out and redacted. That mode of telling is not something that I would want to sustain for 300 pages, and I don't think you'd want to read it for 300 pages. Right. It's something that that readers are really missing out on if they only ever read novels and they don't read short stories. They're missing out on very interesting modes of telling, very interesting angles of narration that would be very hard to do in a novel. And they're missing some of the most interesting things being done. Another factor is, you know, what world do I want to live in? Do I want to live in this world for five years? Because writing the novel and then publishing the novel and talking about the novel, I'm going to be in that world. I better really, really want to live there. And some some places (laughs) you just want to visit for a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's like New York City. (laughs) Right, right, right. 
there certainly are tremendous craft differences too, just in the pacing, in the the depth that you go into, and and they have their own challenges. And I've I've said before, kind of not really joking. It's more something I say in despair that when you write a short story, it's like painting a picture on the head of a pin to get everything in there. And when you write a novel, it's like painting this giant mural that when you're working on it, you're too close to see the whole thing. And those are both nearly impossible tasks um, because of their size. And there, there doesn't yeah. seem to be much in between because nobody right. wants novellas. So no, so nobody much. wants novellas these days. And novellas would be the perfect space at a certain level to right. challenge the attention span of the 21st century reader, but You'd not... Think- not indulge it to the point where all you're doing is writing, you know, memes. Right. So the other thing related to that, I always laugh because scholars, when they finish a book, they just say, now I have to go on the conference circuit. And I finish the book. Like, I'm done with my area of inquiry. So don't ask me any more questions, right? So I love the way you frame that, which is you do have to still live in that world. There's an afterlife many would argue, the real life to any cultural artifact, sure. whether it's a novel or a scholarly book, et cetera, that actually starts when the book goes out there and, and has all of its readers. So I want to spend a little bit of time on character. I noticed Z, right? I noticed Fiona. There are these wonderful sort of, you were talking earlier about things missing or searches mm. and so on. There are these really energetic women who are looking for something in your work that their search kind of opens up a larger public tragedy or Mm -hmm. a larger thing that creates more human empathy, particularly Mm -hmm. in its tragic dimensions. And Fiona's tale is perhaps the, the most telling slash moving to me. I think that's among the many reasons why you're so successful as a writer could you share a little bit more about how you build character, how you think about particularly the women protagonists in your in your yeah. pieces? Yeah, I can. And it's it, interesting, you know, the, I have some questions for you, my new novel, that it is a literary novel, but it's also a mystery, a real mystery, as in there's a there's a dead body and we need to know what happened. And there's a you know, female protagonist again who is the one really, honestly, really investigating her own past and, and interrogating that. You always want a protagonist who is looking for something, who's who needs something or wants something that those motivations, especially when they're deep, when they're desperate, those motivations are what's going to give the plot its momentum. For me, it's interesting. I, I know a lot of writers who start with character. They start with a, a vibe on a certain character. Yeah. And then the work early on that they have to do is figuring out how to push that character into action. What is this character going to do? What will they get up to? For me, I start almost always with plot. I start with the main things that I want to have happen. I don't have it all worked out necessarily. And then I need to work backwards from there to reverse engineer a character. I need to think about who is the character who would be the most susceptible to these circumstances, who'd be the most vulnerable to this or the most changed by the events of the novel. And what about that character can I use to to destabilize them? I don't want a character sealing through my novel. That's not how anybody learns anything or changes or, or, you know, and then of all the times in their life that I write about, why write about this if they didn't emerge changed? So I, I really do need to think about who that person is going to be and what's on the line for them. It feels like 
you know, building your perfect victim or something in, in a terribly uh, masochistic way or sadistic way, rather. It's masochistic also, yeah. but, but I meant sadistic to figure out who this person is that you're going to put through these fires. And not all of my protagonists are women. Fiona in The Great Believers, she, she is a protagonist, but, you know, the she's she's secondary to, yep. to Neil Tishman and my main character. Yep. yep. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily feel much different when I build characters of different genders, except that when I'm writing female characters, the era in which they are a woman, whatever that era is, that's going to be a big part of the story, the pressures on them. I have, you know, in this new book, I have this character looking back at high school in the 1990s. And what did that mean coming of age as a woman in high school in the 90s? What does it mean now as a woman to look back on that time? Those are just going to be part of it. It seems like in the changes that Bodhi goes through, right, in your most recent work, she begins by not being terribly interested in finding all this out. Right. right. That there's a, right. a kind of, do I really have to go through this? And I appreciate that as well, because I think part of what seems successful about your work is you're writing about what some scholars call the recent past, right? Mm -hmm. Which is an era, you're not doing historical fiction from, you know, the 18th century. You're doing something from an era that people could argue with, that have memories of, that, you know, would remember that someone said something different than what you reported it as being, et cetera. Yes. And that's an incredible challenge to do because it's both historical and contemporary at the same time, particularly because of the the stuff that happens in boarding schools and, and high schools is now so front and center in the news. Right. You you went to one of the white hot centers of issues of our times in this most recent book. Yeah, I like that. You know, the recent past is a good way to describe it. I was laughing recently. I saw that um, someone tagged me because the Great Believers was on a list of best historical romance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, really, <laughs> but um, I mean, it's you know it. it and historical, yes, it's it's hard to say it's not historical, but within memory, right? And and a, a yeah. big difference for me, I actually I hadn't thought about this really until now. But you know, if if you if you don't count my first novel and you don't count the story collection, if, if I'm just looking at the Hundred Year House, part of it takes place in 1999, but it was also it's also in the 50s and the 20s, right. and those are times that I did not live through. This This was a lot of research. I was ordering the Sears catalog from 1929 on eBay <laughs> to get, you know, objects and, and things. That's great. It was fun. And then with The Great Believers, it, this was a strange one because I did live through the 80s. I was born in the 70s, but I was a kid in the 80s. And I'm writing about adult gay men living through the AIDS crisis. Yeah. This was not stuff that I knew from my own memory. I, I had yeah. pieces of culture in that way that, you know, kids are so absorbent to the decade. I think that we have a native decade in the same way that we have a native country. I needed tremendous amounts of research from the people who were there. So there was this, this strange thing of history that I lived through, but that's not mine. And then with, with I have some questions for you, I, I really am talking about my lived history. I don't have a lot in common with my main character in terms of personality or anything like that, but I did give her my high school graduation year of 1995 as a way that I could orient myself around 
you know, the events of that time. And, and I know what it means. I got my first email account on my first day of college. And <laughs> it's a very specific moment, the fall of 95. And to make this person exactly that age allowed me to make, at least culturally, to, to feed my memories into hers, even though I'm not writing from real life. Yeah. I'm very struck by the way you begin with plot and think about the character going through the changes. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really powerful way to flip some of the ways that one usually begins a, a, a long writing project, partly because you've automatically got character development, right? By, right. by doing it that way. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a way also to think about the power and the forces of history I was thinking about this in relationship to The Great Believer because I was in Chicago in the mid-'80s uh, in graduate school when all oh. of the AIDS crisis was, was exploding. And I think the way you crafted that book, it seems that it's the sort of sense of loss and then loss and then loss for Yale is such a powerful way of describing it and thinking about it for someone external to it I was in Chicago, I heard about it, I saw it, but I wasn't in it. I wasn't right. part of that community. I was busy getting my degrees in ancient Indian culture and history. Oh, wow. I was in, in my own bubble, right? Yeah. But even I, at that point, knew it as a news story, right? I didn't know that era as a series of personal losses. Um, right. And that, I think, is, is a powerful thing. I want to get back to a couple things um, just as our, our final questions. It's been so fun to talk to you. The question of Breadloaf and, and Middlebury and the way it, it played a role in your life. I noticed that you come back a lot to Vermont. I think you still hang out on Fern Lake. Am I correct? Yeah, we have a, we, yeah. Yeah, we have a, a house there. We, we live there in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what brings you back to Vermont. And I also cannot do this interview without asking you exactly what the moment was when you met your husband. Both of those things are absolutely st stories de rigueur. So. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something funny. This is a little bit woo-woo, but I, I, I found Breadloaf, actually, I found it in the strangest way. I have to back up a little bit here. I was in high school and there was a college fair and I was going along and I stopped at the Middlebury table and for some reason, they had a bunch of breadloaf catalogs there too, maybe to appeal to the teachers, I think, probably. Yeah. Like, like, hey, you know, if you teach, you should see this. Um, and I picked one of those up. And then I did look at Middlebury for undergrad, um, didn't end up going there, but I kept this catalog from 1993, four, I don't know, this breadloaf catalog. I kept it all through college and went, yeah, but this, this place looks really great. I'm going to do this after I graduate. Um and, you know, I did, I'll, I'll go chronologically here, and I, I got, uh, you know, literally, you know, flew into Burlington, got the cab up the mountain, and um, got out, went into the inn, the front desk, and Victoria Brown, who still works at the front desk in the summers, was the person behind the desk, and she goes, oh, this is John, he'll be your, you know, the tour guide, take you around campus. And I turned around, and I thought, oh, he's, he's cute. And then I thought, oh, come on, he's the first person you saw here. Um, and then, <laughs> then we, we've been married for 21 years and I'm sorry, my, my dog is chiming in in the background here. I don't know if you can hear her. D dogs uh, are totally good. I'm a huge oh good. dog person. Oh good. Um, she, she loves Vermont. So maybe that's why she's, that's, it must be that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the weird part is that I found my way, you know, to 
bread loaf. And then we loved Vermont so much. We we had kids. We couldn't be on support staff. But my husband is a high school English teacher. We have the summers. Let's get a cabin here. My mom is really into genealogy and her own family story. And I, I knew we had ancestors from Vermont. But it turns out that they're from, you know, five miles, 10 miles from where we ended up buying this house. Wow. And so I'm thinking... In that, Addison County? Yep, Addison County. Yeah, so like some of them were, a lot of them were, were from Moncton, but then from Rutland and in that whole area. You know, I'm, I'm like, well, that's ridiculous, of course. It, and then I'm like, well, but salmon can do that, right? <laughs> Return to ancestral. <laughs> right, of course. Why. If a salmon can do it, why can't I? Yeah, absolutely. It's partly conscious and partly not so conscious. Right, right. Yeah. Who were your relatives? Can you can you name some of them? And have you gone back to the homesteads? Oh God, yeah. Well, it, it's this is the impossible part because their last name was Smith. But um, there were some <laughs> there were some Green Mountain boys in there, and yes. um, there's there's a giant giant because it's been added on to in a very janky manner farmhouse in Moncton on and I, I kid you not Shard Scrabble Road um, that is okay. still there, and so we've you know we've driven past it and I. I would feel very odd knocking on the door and asking if these people happen to know their ancestry going back to the 1850s or whatever. But it might very well be the same family. Um, wow. So, yeah. Your long last cousins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just discovered uh, someone through a deep Vermont connection uh, was my 11th cousin, and we can prove it genealogically. So oh, my gosh. I would encourage you very much to knock on that door. Oh, boy. And I will go with you. I'm very good at cold <laughs> calling. It's part of my job. So oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, so you just have to, you were very truncated on the story of you and Tom Freeman. So you got to tell me what happened at the tour. Was it the tour oh, during the tour? Where oh, you no, 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 he, uh, no, we, uh, he was leading then there was like a, just a singing group um, on, uh -huh. the, on the mountain. And I wasn't, I'm a singer, I, I sing in college, but I wasn't even going to join it. And then, um, I had been walking with a friend and we ended up in the, in the barn, in the, the big barn up there. Yep. And um, she said, oh, you, sh you should join the singing group. And I was like, no, I'm just going to stay here for a minute and then I'm going to leave. And it started pouring rain outside, just sheets of rain. And I was I didn't have an umbrella and I was like, oh, I'm stuck here. And so then they started warming up and she was like, come on. I was like, oh, fine. So I joined the singing group <laughs> and then we got to know each other and, and uh, became friends. And, you know, by the end of the summer, we're, we're deeply involved. So it took, you know, it took a lot of strange chain of events and uh, an act of God. <laughs> it worked and, out. And a little music, as you yeah. say in your short story collection, among other things. Totally. Well, listen, Rebecca, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. I'm so excited about your new book. Congratulations on all the success that that has had, as well as, you know, the real Middlebury legacy that you continued, I think, both in your work as well as in your teaching and the way that you integrate the two. You really are a model for so many people at Middlebury. And thank you so much for, for being that model and being a fellow traveler with us. And I'll see you at Breadloaf. I hope so. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank Rebecca Mackay for joining us in conversation today. Mid-Moment is hosted by me, Lori Patton, president of Middlebury. The podcast is executive produced by Matt Jennings, editor of Middlebury Magazine, and produced, engineered, and edited 
by Caitlin White and the terrific folks at the podcast agency, University FM. Research on this episode was provided by Sarah Thurber Marshall. For more conversations like this, subscribe to Mid Moment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.